Father, it is rather amazing that we can even have a relationship with a holy God, God who rules over this entire universe, and one who we can actually say, I love you, um, one who we hear said to us, I love you. It's pretty incredible, Father. Thank you for your love for us. We love you only because you have first loved us. You are a holy and a glorious God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the things that was going through my mind as we were singing that song, Only a Holy God, was the portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is brought into the presence of the Lord and uh, King Uzziah had died and it says, I lifted up my eyes and I saw the Lord seated on his throne. Pretty amazing. And then I jumped in my head to Revelation chapter 4. And again, just a reminder of the throne of God, the control center of the universe, so to speak. God is in control. And he is a holy God. He is holy in all his ways. He is holy in God in his character. Or he's holy in his character. Uh, it's pretty amazing that God has revealed himself to us as his uh, children. Uh, as we head into uh, our time together this morning, uh, there's a few things uh, that uh, um, we're going to be dealing with, and uh, we're jumping back to the Old Testament. It's been our practice here to kind of spend some time in the New Testament and then spend some time in the Old Testament. There's a number of reasons why I, I like that plan or that method in general, and uh, it helps us stay familiar with all of Scripture. Uh, and it helps us see the different kinds of literature that's in the Scripture. And it introduces us, I think, in uh, ways to the story of God that um, we sometimes don't get to see. I want to just take a couple of minutes to, before we get into Elijah, to orient ourselves in the Bible. I think it matters that we understand uh, the Scriptures a little bit and what it is we read and how it is that we read the Scriptures and so I do want to say a little bit about that before we d dive into a uh, look at Elisha. Um, it helps us maybe situate Elisha in the Bible and helps us situate ourselves in the Bible. But if I was to ask you a simple question, I wonder how you'd answer it. How do you read your Bible? How do you read your Bible? What do you think the Bible really is when you come to it? As, I was, uh, as I'm often accustomed to do, I think of a song when I hear a phrase, and so that phrase, how do you read your Bible, brought to my mind that Smarties commercial that used to be on TV many, many years ago. When you read your Bible, do you read the Gospels first? Do you read them very slowly or skim them very fast? Do you ever get to Numbers or Micah in the pinch? When you read your Bible, do you read the Gospels first? Um, I think some of you who are over 50 probably are familiar with that. But how do you read the Bible? I think it really matters that we think about that from time to time. Some people read the Bible as a book of rules. They, they read the Bible as a way to orient themselves ethically or morally, so to speak. They want to know how to live. They, they want to know what they can do and what they can't do. They want to know how they can expect others to live. They want to know what it is God has commanded us to do. It can also sometimes in that context be a tool for condemnation, a way to judge other people. But for some people, that's one of the primary reasons they read the Bible or the ways in which they read the Bible. Uh, I think for uh, some people, it's a book of promises. 
Uh, we've had those promise books or promise boxes forever. We have uh, devotionals that we can download, and we get a, a, a daily devotional from a certain author or a certain writer. Or, or we, we have promises that are on the walls of our house or sometimes in our bedrooms or wherever they might be. And as we look to those promises, we find comfort. We find hope. We, we find encouragement. We find peace. And those, those verses, those promises sustain us as we go through our day. And so we read the Bible with our eye on promises. I think some people read the Bible for wisdom. And they know that they need wisdom for life. They've got decisions to make about maybe a job that they're taking or about the family that they're raising or about the spouse that they're looking for. And so we read the Bible for wisdom. And there's wisdom books that we know that you can find, uh, five wisdom books, particularly in the Old Testament. But there's wisdom throughout the Bible. And so we skim the Bible until we find a point of wisdom. And that wisdom then helps us make our way through life, helps us make decisions in the world in which we live. For some, we read the Bible with an eye to doctrine, and that's really a high priority to us. And as you know, there's eight major doctrines in the Bible, and some people read the, the Bible as a way to sustain them in that doctrine, to strengthen their view of that doctrine, to help them make sense of the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of end times. You read other books that help you make sense of the scriptural proclamations on doctrine, and so you you feed yourself on the Scripture, and you have an eye to reading the Bible for doctrine. Now, Scripture is certainly all of these things. It is, it is a book of promises. It is a, a book of promises that give us assurance. It is a book that gives us clear ethical or moral teaching. It is a book that gives us wisdom for life. It is a book that is full of theological truth and helps us system, systematize some of those things. But I think there's a way that God has given us His Word and a way that He wants us to understand or work our way out through the Bible, the form that the Bible takes primarily, the way it takes shape, and that is that the Bible is a story. In fact, it is the story. It's the story about God. It's the story about the universe in which we live. It's a story about everything that has ever taken place in history and that is taking place in history. It's a story about the future. It's a story about where this world is going. Our lives fit into the Bible story, not the other way around. The, the Bible is just not meant to be little bits and pieces that we find and we take and we apply them to our stories. Rather, we are to find our lives and our meaning in the story of God. The story begins in a garden, in a, in a place of beauty in a place of perfection in a place that after God had finished making it and all that was in it he said this is very very good and then as we know if you're familiar with the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 there's a there's a just a drastic um, turn in the story when sin enters into the world and all of a sudden all that God had made that was good begins to unravel and that there's there's this long period of time in which evil threatens to undo everything that God has done and there's a complex storyline that is woven throughout the Bible, much of the Old Testament, that leads us to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we find all of a sudden the center of the story, the crux of the story. All that has been leading us is towards Christ, and everything flows out from Christ into our lives and into this world. And finally, there's the amazing conclusion of this story. 
The amazing conclusion is the new heavens and the new earth where we will spend an eternity with God. And I said the confusion, I think, comes in our lives sometimes when we try and live in the world's story or we even try and live our own story and we try and make the Bible relevant to that. We read the Bible for clues and tips and words and guidance for our lives and our world and our story in the story of the world in which we find ourselves. We just add a dose of the Bible, so to speak, to our lives to help us make sense of the world around us. When we do this, though, in effect, what we have done is we've lost the storyline of the Bible. We've lost the sight of the biblical plot, and we have forgotten the story that we are in. Every one of us, as God's creation, we have forgotten that we are part of God's grand story. For some years, I've mapped that out in my head just as I make my way through the Bible and as I orient myself in different ways as I read it to sort of four, four unfolding dramas. The first I've already mentioned is creation. And that's the Genesis 1 and 2. And then from creation uh, to, to, to the end of this age, we have redemption. We have the, we, well, we have the fall and then after the fall, we have the story of redemption and how God is working in this world to turn that all back on itself and once again restore the world and us into a perfect relationship with Him. And then the final act of that is the end where we live with God forever and ever. I was reading somebody a, a little while ago and he helped fill that out for me a little bit. And I, I, I say this to us not just for information. I say it to help us as we read the Bible, but also because I, I want us to orient Elisha in our life. So we don't get mixed up with how we are supposed to identify or relate to the life of Elisha and the stories of Elisha as we study him for the next number of weeks together. And so we can un unfold or unpack the story of God in seven sort of acts or seven dramas. The first one I've already mentioned is creation. It's the, it's the first uh, two chapters of the Bible where God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in it. He created men and women in the image of God. And he gave us this place in this world to rule over this world and to serve one another in this world. That was God's intention for mankind and for the world that he made. But act two is the introduction of rebellion. And we see that everywhere. We see it in our own hearts. It was first introduced through the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, but there they chose to disobey God's instructions. They chose to say, I'm not going to live by your rules. I'm not going to live by, by, the, by the instructions that you give me. I'm going to be the determiner of what is right and wrong in my life. And we see that everywhere in the world in which we live. People are their own gods. People are their own level of morality. They are deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And the consequence of that is moral chaos. The consequence of that is rebellion against the God who has set us in this world. It's created brokenness and it's made this inseparable gulf between us and God. The third act is really most of the Old Testament. And it's really about how God begins to give promises. Promises about a coming redemption. Promises about a coming restoration. You see that even in the first promise that's given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where God promises to send one who will crush the serpent's head, one who will bring about redemption for us. And then you move your way through the Bible and you have promise after promise after promise 
You have the promises to the family of God initiated through Abraham, which we looked at a little while ago. And through Abraham, God would, would begin to restore uh, the nations of the world to rightness. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And through Abraham, there would come a family of God that would be, number more than the stars of the heavens. And how God begins to work out His promise of redemption through Abraham. You, you go through the, the, the time of history in the, uh, of Israel. You go through the wisdom literature. You go through the prophets. And they're all moving us to the fulfillment of great promises that God has given His people. And then you come to Christ. Christ is the center of this grand story. He's the center of the story of the world. And you find the story of Christ in the Gospels, how God is going to turn around and how God does reverse the curse. And there you have the story about how God came to earth in the person of Christ. How He walked among us, how He lived among us, how He perfectly obeyed the Father, how He gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins, how, how, how God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but they would have eternal life. How death could not hold Him and God raised Him from the dead and He's now ascended into the, uh, the throne of heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning from heaven. Christ is the center of that story. And then you have this period of time which starts really at Acts when the Spirit of God falls and, and is given to all men and women, boys and girls, without distinction. And we have a mission then. It, there's the New Testament mission of the people of God and it's to take the news of the kingdom of God to all the earth, to the ends of the earth. Then you have Acts 6, which is the judgment which we've spent time looking at as we've gone through Second Peter. The end of this age in which God will set all things right, where the righteous judgment of God will be demonstrated and will be worked out in this world and to all humanity and even to all creation. And then you have the final act of God's story, the end of God's story, which is the recreation, the, 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 the creating of a new heavens and a new earth. It's the culmination of all the redemption of Christ to humankind and to the universe. And those who are in Christ, those who are children of God, will live with Him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a really quick overview or description of God's story. All of that described in the Bible for us. And as we read the Bible, that's the story in which we are called to live. God is not called to live in our story. We are called to live in God's story. And as we find our place in God's story, we find meaning. We find purpose, even in the insignificant of our own lives, which might seem so short and so, so small in comparison with all that's going on in the world around us. You see, it's the biblical story that gives meaning to our story. It's the biblical story that gives us direction and gives us orientation that helps us find our place in the world, that tells us what we're all about. And it's God's story that we are called to live in. And so the point is simply this. We are in the Bible. And when we read the Bible, we orientate ourselves to the Bible. So with that in mind, then, where would you place Elisha? In God's big story, where would you place Elisha? We place Elisha in Act 3. Elisha is, is part of that, the general scheme of the promises of God. The, the work of God that is 
pointing out the rebellion and the need of help in that rebellion and the need of a coming Redeemer. In fact, Elisha is in many ways one who points us to Christ. And next week we'll spend a little bit of time just talking about that. But then where would you find us? Where are we in the story of God? We don't go back to Elisha. We don't go back to the Old Testament. We are part of the New Testament mission. We are between Christ and the judgment. We are to be those who take the gospel, the kingdom of God, to the ends of the earth. And so as we look at Elisha then, and as we find our own orientation in the story, we want to find out, well, how do I live now? How do I make sense of what God has called me to do in the setting that He has placed me? How can my choices, my behavior, my thoughts, my actions belong and fit within this great story and with some measure of worthiness and consistency in what God has called me to do? We're going to, I'm looking forward to the story of Elisha. We've called it a, a man unfazed. And because Elisha faced some of the most, in, some of the biggest challenges that somebody can face. And he faced it unfazed in a confidence in God. And he found his place in God's story, and he lived for the glory of God. As we come to the story of Elijah, we're going to find that it's connected um, with what God is doing in Elijah's life when we come to the story of Elisha. I'm going to read a scripture in a second, and we're going to see in this scripture that Elisha, Elijah is coming out of a, a time when he's spent um, a number of weeks with God, and he is come before God and he's, he's just so overtaken by the rebellion of Israel. He's so overtaken by the sin of Israel. He, he can't understand why Jezebel, who had just witnessed the power of God, is so intent on killing him. Why is there so much hatred towards the people of God and towards God himself? And as Elisha is coming out on the other side of that, he, he knows that his life is going to end. He, he's wondering what God is going to do, how God is going to carry on. And God says, okay, uh, Elijah, when you go back, I want you to do three things. I want you to anoint three men. I, I want you to anoint Hazael. And I want you to anoint Jehu. And I want you to anoint Elisha, who is going to take your place. And on top of that, Elisha, even though I, Elijah, even though I agree with you that, that Israel is in a tough state, I want you to know that I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What an encouragement for Elijah. So if you have your Bibles, take them. And I want to just um, read a few verses there and then just make uh, three comments about uh, God's call upon Elisha's life. So 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 14. And again, the context is, Elisha, Elijah now has spent time with God. God has ministered to him, encouraged him, and he's now going back to continue to serve God and God's people. Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Aren't you glad you don't live in Act 3? And more particularly, that you weren't a prophet in Act 3. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, said the Lord. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. 
and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have, what have I done to you? And he returned from following him. He took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. I just want to make, as I say, three comments about these verses. First is how suddenly God's call may come to a life. How suddenly God's call may come. One day I hope maybe I get to sit down with Elisha. There's lots of people I'd like to sit down with when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. But I'd like to ask Elisha, Elisha, what was that day like? What was that day like for you? The day when everything changed in your world. It would have been a day, I suspect, where they got up in the morning and all the servants were gathered and whether they rented a few yoke of oxen or these were all his fathers, we don't know, but they're sitting around the breakfast table and as they're getting ready for the day ahead of them, they're, they're probably talking about recent events. I suspect that there was a good chance that Elisha was part of the people of Israel that went up to Mount Carmel and, Carmel and witnessed this great act that took place where Elijah stood by himself against 850 prophets. And he would have witnessed this great spectacle that took place on that mountain. And how Elijah, finally it came to him and he simply just prayed out to God, God, would you send fire? And fire from heaven fell and it consumed the, 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 the sacrifice and it consumed the altar and it sucked up all the altar around it. And then there was this slaughter of 850 prophets. And I wonder if they were still talking about that. They couldn't believe what had taken place. A few weeks back. Probably would have been about a month or so, maybe a bit longer. And, and then they might have shifted a little bit to an and what is what happened to Elijah? You know, we saw him come down, but we've not heard hide nor hair of him. He's he's just disappeared and he's gone. And maybe that was part of their breakfast conversation. But also, there was probably just great hope and anticipation at that breakfast table because after all, they were about to do something they hadn't done in three years. They were going to hook up the oxen to, to the, with the yokes and the plows and they were going to take them out and they were going to plow their fields. It hadn't rained for three years. They maybe tried this last year, but all they got was dust and now there had been this massive downpour and the ground was actually soaked and the, 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 the fields were, were, now, were now soaked and holding all the water and they could take the plows through them and turn them over with great anticipation of a coming harvest. They were hitching up the 12 oxen and they headed out to the field. And I don't know what point in the day they were out in the field, but all of a sudden, maybe they looked off and as they're, they're plowing the straight line, they look and they see this lone, solitary figure walking towards them. They wonder who this is. And maybe some of them, maybe a penny started to drop and they remember, that's Elijah. What's Elijah? He's back. And they kind of keep going, but they're looking out the side of their, 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 their head, I was going to say. They've got their head to the side, though, and they're, they're looking. And all of a sudden, 
Elijah makes a beeline for the yoke of oxen that Elisha's on. He doesn't say a word. Suddenly he takes his mantle off and he places it over the shoulder of Elijah, Elisha, and he starts walking away. Scripture tells us there is no vision, no dream, no uh, indication or warning to Elisha that this was going to happen. As I say, Elijah just approached him, threw his cloak on him, and started walking away. And we say, well, what would Elisha do? Most everyone probably would have understood what had taken place. This was just a symbol, a symbol that uh, Elijah was asking him to be his servant. He was asking him to be his pro- protege. But the moment for Elisha was as sudden as the day that Moses was out with his father-in-law's sheep and he's walking in the desert and all of a sudden he turns and psh, this bush is on fire. Never seen it before. And all of a sudden there's a voice that comes out of the bush. It's daylight no other. It just happens suddenly. Or maybe like a day Zacchaeus woke up one morning and heard that Jesus was coming by. And as you all know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Climbs up in the sycamore tree. Sees Jesus walking by. Jesus stops near the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. The call of God comes suddenly. Now, while it might have been sudden for Elisha, it was planned by God. And here we have some of the big mystery of the ways of God in our lives and in the world. Because we already read a little bit earlier that two, three weeks earlier, God had called Elijah and said, Listen, Elijah, I want you to go and I want you to anoint Elisha because he is going to take your place. So that day was sudden and unexpected and unplanned for Elisha. But God knew about it, and Elijah knew about it. What do we make of that? How do we mesh the plan and the foreknowledge and the calling of God with the very reality that Elisha had to decide what he would do? Elisha had to decide that he would jump off that plow and he would go after Elijah. There's mystery in the ways of God, but I believe them both with all of my heart. And as I was in my study, I was thinking there might be some here today with a decision to make. Your being here in this building at this time is no accident. I don't know why God has brought everyone here that he has brought here today of all the people that could be here. But you're feeling a tug in your heart, maybe. maybe. Maybe in a song that we've sung or words that we've read or a culmination of your own searching and thinking, you're coming to a point where you, where you, you feel the call of Jesus in you. You say, I want you to come to me. I know your life is a mess. I know your world is in disarray, but I want to give you life. I want to give you new life. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so you're sitting right now in your chair here, or maybe you're watching and you've got a decision to make. God knows about that. God knew that you would be in this building at this time or watching on our live stream at this time. And I don't want to be overly dramatic 
about it in any way. But you have a decision to make. This might be the very first time you've ever heard the call of God. You feel it in your heart and you say, something's happening. I, I, I can hear, I can, I can sense that God is opening my eyes to see Christ. This might be the hundredth time you've felt that. And this could be the last time you hear that. Sometimes the call of God comes suddenly. Will you decide for Christ today? Will you say, I'm going to leave my sin, I'm going to leave my shame, I'm going to give up my hopelessness, or I'm going to give up my good life because I know there's more, and I'm going to follow Jesus. One individual put it this way, suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. Secondly, how completely God's call is obeyed. There was no hesitation on Elisha's part, none whatsoever. It simply says that he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. That must have been quite a sight. Like, I don't know if they, they had more than one guy on a plow with a team of oxen, but if they didn't, what happened to the oxen? Like, did he slam the brake on and stick them in the ground, or did they start going left and, no, that's right, and left? Um, I don't know, but it simply says as soon as that mantle dropped on him and and, and he started seeing Elijah walk away. He jumped down and he left the ox and he ran after Elijah. And he said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And then Elisha's difficult response to him. He says to him, go back again. For what have I done to you? A strange comment for a guy like Elijah to make. There's been a number of ways that people have tried to understand that. Um, one has been along the lines of, well, of course you can, Elisha. I, I've not said you can't go say goodbye to your family. I've not given you any law. Go say goodbye to your family. Another uh, viewpoint has been, and I think there's probably some merit to this. Uh, yeah, you can, but don't forget what I've done to you. Remember that I placed my mantle on you. Remember that in going back to say goodbye, you don't use that as an opportunity to second-guess your decision. Remember what I've done to you. Remember what God has done to you through me. So yeah, of course you can go back, but don't forget you've been called by God. The third way, and I've not found this anywhere. This is just how I've often read this text, and maybe it's just through the eyes of, of um, being aware of what missionaries and uh, those who serve God full-time maybe go through. But when Elisha says, what have I done to you? Maybe he's reflecting on the road ahead for Elisha. We know what Elijah's life had been like. One confrontation after another. He felt that he was all alone serving God. He had a queen that was just livid with him and was doing everything she could to find him and kill him. He lived amongst people who called themselves the children of God, but they were hard-hearted and rebellious, serving Baal. He likely didn't have a wife. He didn't have a home. He didn't have any security. And this is what he's calling Elisha to? Maybe he's just even not even intending it for Elisha to hear it, but he's just saying, what have I done? 
to you. In any case, Elisha goes home, he drags the oxen with him, slaughters them, takes the yokes and all the implements of the plow and chops them up and lights a fire and puts a big pot on and all the hunks of meat and everything stops. They all have a steak dinner, a bit of a celebration. And then off goes Elisha. This was Elisha's sure way of saying, I have nothing to go back to now. The symbolism is pretty clear. I, I've killed my oxen and I've destroyed the implementations of farming. I'm not going back anymore. Dale Ralph Davis notes that Elisha faced God in a number of ways. He gives three. I've added a fourth. The first is, and this is the, the completeness of the call that comes to us, but in his affections. He says, I, can I go home and kiss my father and, good, and mother goodbye? There's something final in this act. He's given up one loyalty for another. He's not saying, um, I will never see you again, or I don't want to see you again, or you've ruined my life, or anything like that. What he's simply saying is, God is first in my life. I have decided that I'm going to give up all that I have here, I'm going to give up all my affections. My heart belongs to God in this way. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he had to face God with his affections. He had to face God with his security. I already mentioned this. There are 12 yoke of oxen. Certainly point to his father's wealth, if not his father's influence. Whether all those yoke of oxen were his father's, um, we don't know, but the fact that he could get 12 yokes of oxen to do his field suggests his influence, but also the size of his field. That had a pretty big field if you've got 12 yokes of oxen that are used to cultivate it. But consider the choice before him. Manage my father's estate or wear the mantle of Elijah pretty significant choice regarding his security. What about his familiarity? The comforts of home, the comforts of the farm, the comforts of the agrarian lifestyle, the, 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 the joy of the seasons, the hard work sometimes, the slow work at other times, just a wonderful life of familiarity, feasts and birthdays and all those sorts of things. He would leave all of that and wouldn't have a place to stay necessarily, wouldn't know where he was going to stay, wouldn't know where his meals were going to come from totally dependent on God to meet every one of his needs. And he faced God with his future. As I mentioned, he had nothing to come back to. Symbolically, he had said goodbye to his parents. He had destroyed his implements of security and the oxen and the implements for farming. He was making a clean break with the past. As far as his future was concerned, he now was casting himself wholly on God to provide for him. The call of God is no less demanding on us. It, it will look different in all of our lives. But the call of God has the same implications for our affections, for our security, for our familiarity, for our future. There's a passage in Chronicles which I read at least once a year and I reflect on many more times in the year. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong 
to those who are fully his. Another place Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Can we ever, in response to the call of God in our life, improve upon Elisha's, I will come after you? When God calls us, whatever he calls us to and whatever he calls us from, can we say, I will come after you? And then the third thing I note here is simply how not so glamorous God's call may be. Um, Verse 21, the last part of verse 21 simply says, Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Some of our translations will say, and served him. The scriptures give us nothing to go on to help us make sense of the mood of that feast in the afternoon or late morning, whenever it was. I can only guess at the number of responses by some of the servants, maybe, or some of the hired hands, or by uh, his mom and dad, or by his brothers and sisters that would have been there. I simply would say this, maybe, how would you respond if out of the blue your son or daughter came home in a similar way to Elisha and said, you know, mom or dad, I'm convinced that God is calling me too. Out of the blue, one day everything changes. And they come and say, I'm convinced that God is calling me to do this. I suspect as we think that through, there'd be a number of reactions to us. How how are you going to pay for that? And who are you going to live with? And you're not even 16 yet, and all these sorts of things. How would you respond if your spouse or your grandchild or your son or daughter came home one night and said, you know what? I've decided I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus. I still love you, Mom and Dad, with all of my heart. But Jesus has captured my heart. And I'm going to serve him for the rest of my life. How would you respond if you heard that said to you? There's certainly a gesture of kindness, I think, on Elisha's part here where he says to Elijah, let me go home first and kiss my mom and dad goodbye. You know, maybe he took his mom and dad aside as he kissed them and said, mom and dad, I love you. I love this farm. I've worked hard on it with you. And I know you want me to have it. But I've heard the call of God through Elijah. And I'm going, I I hope you're okay with that. And I suspect his mom and dad just grabbed him around the neck and said, honey, we love you. Go serve God. And listen to how it's described of what Elisha initially faced. It says, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. As I said, many translations said, became his servant. There's nothing glamorous about that at all. In fact, a little bit later in 2 Kings, when uh, a king is trying to describe Elijah and uh, Elisha, Elisha, he says something along the lines, well, you know, the, the one who poured water on Elijah's hands. That was a pretty menial task. That was a task that really the lowest of servants would do for their master. And yet that is how Elisha is described as serving Elijah. He poured water 
on his hands. Not, no glamour there, is there? And yet we see that with Christ, too. Christ determined to leave all the prerogatives of heaven, all the, the prerogatives of deity, all the comforts of, of, of being at home with his Father and with the Spirit. He set aside all of that, and what did he do? He took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. The Bible tells us that Christ came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Bible tells us also, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So serving is in the DNA of God's children. If, if we are to be like our Heavenly Father, and if we are to be like our brother Christ, and we are being transformed into his image, then we are those that have serving in our DNA, so to speak, our spiritual DNA. I've been part of this church for 15, 16 years, and there's two things that stand out. There, there's hundreds of things, but two sort of general things that stand out to me in an ongoing way about this congregation. One is your care. You are a caring congregation. You love one another, you care for one another, but you also care for people in our community and people around the world. It's just evident in so many ways. But an another thing that I think is, stands out about us as a people of God is we're serving people. And I've often been so thankful for little things I hear about the way you serve in the community, the way you serve in the places that you work, the, the way that you uh, serve in organizations outside of the church, and the way that you serve even in this church. And as I've been going through this, so I thought, you know, as we start a new season, there's, I, I'd just like to remind us and encourage us in particularly this area of service. And as it relates to serving here in the church, we do have some real needs as we go. I'm not sure if they're all related to the circumstances of the world we're in and the comfort zone of people here, but our kids' ministry really needs people to serve. It needs people that will come alongside and pour water on the hands of Christina, so to speak. Uh, it could be in, in ways of just setting up the classrooms. It could be in ways of teaching. I can't promise glamour, <laughs> but I can promise great joy and great fulfillment. You might say, well, can I serve with my spouse? Absolutely. Can I serve with my family? Absolutely. Can I serve with my life group? Absolutely. Just say, you know, I can only serve once a month, but say I will do that and be committed to that. We also have a, a youth group, and, and these are high-intensity, high-volume ministries in the church, and we have dozens of kids that come both from within our church and from the community that have an opportunity to come here. And Andrew needs help. He needs people that will come alongside him and um, pour water on his hands, so to speak. And uh, so again, you don't have to do it by yourself. You can do it with a friend. You can say, you know what, as a friend, let's do this once a month. Let's help out in the youth ministry. And Lori, Lori needs help in our worship ministry. If you can sing or you play an instrument or you can work in technology, it's not my way of, of, of I hope you don't feel browbeat. I'm just, these are needs that we have right now. We, we need people to serve. And so if you can serve in kids ministry or youth ministry or music ministry, I encourage you, talk to Lori. And find Andrew, phone him this week or talk to Christina. And it just helps us then serve your children and your grandchildren and you as we serve together in the worship ministry. But I, I like that line at the end that the call of God is not necessarily glamorous. But there is something wonderful about serving and going home at the end of a day or at the end of a service and, and just saying, thank you, Father, for the opportunity that I had 
to use the gifts that you have given me to move your kingdom ahead just a little bit more. So as we think about the call of God, certainly in Elijah's life, it may come suddenly, whether it's the call to respond to Christ for the very first time or the call to serve God in a very unique way. The call of God requires full obedience. There's no half-heartedness in following God. And then to bring us down to earth, the call of God is often not glamorous. And uh, sometimes the tasks are as menial as pouring water on the hands of others in the kingdom of God. May God help us find our place, both in this church and in the community in which we live. Father, we thank you for your word. Today, I, I thank you for the Bible and for the reminder that while it is a book that can be used pragmatically in so many ways, it is much more than that. It, it is a story of what you are doing, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Would you help us find our place in your story? And Father, would you help us look at the life of uh, Elisha and how he responded to your call in his life at that time and glean some ways in which, Father, we can hear your voice in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.